Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today, I am talking with Dan Horan, a 25-and-a-half, 26-year veteran of Orange County Fire Rescue. Uh, he's also a veteran of the United States Army, served in Korea, where else did you serve? I know. Well, I was stationed in Hawaii. And from there, we like, you know, all over the Pacific. Japan. I went to Japan. I went to um, Thailand and um, Korea three times. You know, just that kind of stuff. Okay. So like, you'd, like, you know, you'd go like Korea was a that was the big, big event. So three months or two to three months each time. I think the shortest I went to Korea was like a month and a half. But the other times it was two months or two and a half months. And what unit were you attached to? Well, well, my division was the 25th Infantry Division, and I was a three-quarter cav, three-quarter cavalry. And and what did uh, what did you do in the army, other uh, than train and march and drink beer? Um, I was <laughs> I was a, uh, a helicopter mechanic. All right. And what took you into the army? Uh, from Detroit. So, okay, well, let's go back further then. When were you born and, and where were you born? I was born in Detroit, uh, in the house. Um, I was, my mom gave birth to me in the, I keep saying kitchen, but then she later corrected me and said the living room. So I guess I made a mess on the carpet. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and this is the house that you grew up in? Uh, no, we moved like four blocks away when I was uh, four. So like I grew up like, like the street was called Minock and then I moved to Greenview, which was like, I don't know, three or four blocks away. And you must have done a number on that carpet, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think so, they got the deposit back. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about growing up in Detroit and just kind of... Uh, We've talked a lot about it, and right. it was kind of rough, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know now it was rough, but I just thought it was normal back then. You know, like when I talked to people in the army about, like, you know, they would they would say like they'd never had a fight before, or they'd never, you know, got into a fight at school. You know, and the older I got, the less common it got. But you know, from first grade on, I mean, <laughs> from kindergarten on, you know, you had to fight once a week. And sometimes it would just be like pushing and puffing up. And sometimes it would be, you know, punching and, and, you know, whatever, kicking if you have to. And two brothers, is that right? Yeah. One older brother. He's like uh, 18 months older. We're Irish twins. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you are Irish, correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got me guilty. Um, yeah. My mom and dad moved from Canada to, De to Detroit um, when they were like in their early 20s. 
and uh, they're all their parents are are from uh, Ireland. Your Irish twin brother is eighteen months older than you, and then you have a younger brother. How yeah, how old is he's he? He's the he's your age. He's like nine years younger than me. You grew up in Detroit, and at some point you moved to Florida. Yeah, I got out of the army. I got to Florida because you know I landed in Detroit. I realized you know Detroit. Eesh. Um, you know, my mom said, uh, you know, if, uh, cause there's nothing, it was 1987. In fact, all I did is drink beer and watch the Iran Contra hearing on TV until all my friends got home from work. But, um, <laughs> cause I was a nerd back then too, but uh, yeah, 1987, it was August. Me and my dad had some words. My mom said, if you, you come stay here, as long as you go to school, you can stay for free. And, uh, so I loaded up what few belongings I had into my car and, drove to florida and in august i was thinking in august of 87 is when i when i got like august 23rd somewhere around there and i got hired on the fire department in august of 89 like two years later so it took me two years from when i got to florida and how long did you spend in the army four years what, four? three years and 10 months it was a thing called the grand rugby act where they uh trying to save money the cold war was running down so they like shaved two months off everyone's um it was optional you know you could say no no i signed a contract i could stay in but i don't know anybody who did that and then you came on the department in 89 how long did you spend as a firefighter half my career as a fireman and uh the other half as an engineer and and 100 percent awesome 100 <laughs> you you spent time as a union rep uh, for yeah. local 2057. Yep. And your dad was a blue collar guy. He's uh, a bricklayer. Yeah. yeah. So he was a union guy as well. Yeah. Name only. I mean, yeah. Cause he's norm. Uh, he's um, a Republican. He used to say like, he, he's been on strike a couple of times and they'd say things like, uh, I gotta go, you know, hold up this big sign and, you know, pocket, you know, so we can get a better job conditions and stuff like that. And, and then I, you know, well, did you vote for who? You, you vote? You voted for Carter? It's like, no, hell no, I'm not voting for a Democrat. Why don't you tell tell the audience a little bit about your your history with the department and talk about because you know I know that there's going to be some uh, people from Orange County that'll listen and right. it'll be mixed reviews. You know, you've right. got oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it will be mixed. <laughs> so let's let's go into your history. Well, I'm a little outspoken, so it's like I'm quick with my opinion. I used to always say I'm open-minded, but I'm very opinionated. And people would think, you can't be both. You get to be one or the other. And I'm like, no, I, I have lots of opinions on everything, you know, but it's like I'm also open to hear what your opinion is. I mean, just because I like the color blue, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, I can't understand why you like the color green. I don't try to, like, force you. No, 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 you're wrong for liking green. You need to like blue. But you're very argumentative. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So that has either turned people off or really yeah. Earned some the people like it. Some people, uh, uh, exactly, have thought that you know I was pretty cool, and some people thought you know what an asshole. <laughs> and I'm both those things. I am pretty cool, but I am kind of an asshole. <laughs> Chances are, though, if you were like a dumbass or uh, a hypocrite. Chances are you were in the asshole camp. You know what I'm saying? You you thought me of an asshole. But if you were hardworking, motivated, even, I don't care if you were dumb, but if you just tried your best, I was always out to help, you know. But if you were a dumbass or cocky prick, 
chances are I wasn't so much out to help you. Let's hear some of uh, your experiences, uh, good or bad. Some of the experiences that maybe shaped your career. Oh God. Well, like, cause when the first half of my career, like the first time I was eligible to take the engineer test, I had 10 years on the fire department because uh, we went like with a hiring freeze. I think you had to be have five or six years on. I think it was six years, but it might be five to even be eligible to take the test. So by the time I had six years on, they locked it up and it was a, it was a hiring freeze. So we couldn't, uh, we couldn't even take a test. I think it was 99 or it might've been 98. 98 is when uh, the first test and I did pretty badly. I mean, I was really good on the pumping and the driving, but like, I didn't know what to expect for the test. So I placed 69 out of like 200 or so. So I didn't do so good. And then the next time, you know, I knew what to expect. I did kick the ass on the driving and pumping again. And then, you know, I, I scored number two. So that's how I got promoted. Well, in the, my fire department career was mostly down south. Like I started off at station 36. I spent like two years there. And then transferred to uh, um, they because well, it was like a, everyone was shuffling around people, and uh, I got transferred to 52 because they did like a, we when I first went to 36, it was an engine and a truck, no, an engine and a rescue, and then it became an engine and a truck, and then it was they got rid of the truck. They're always moving them around for insurance purposes and whatnot coverage. Uh, then it was an engine, two engines and a rescue. And then when they moved me, they dropped it back to two rescues or two engines, excuse me, one engine and a rescue. And that's how I ended up at, at 52. And, and yeah. so when you were there at 36, did, did you get there before or after? I was, one, I was one of their replacements. And I, I did, when I got out, my mom lived in Clearwater, you know, St. Pete area. I went to St. Pete Botech for the fire academy. So I didn't know anything about those guys dying. I didn't know anything about it. Like when I got in like the two weeks of orientation, they were talking about it, I, like giving us a class on it and building collapse. And it just sounded to me like this shit happened 10 years ago. I'd have no idea when it happened. Cause you know, it's all local news stuff. And I, then I found out that, no, this just happened, I guess, uh, like six months before I got hired. And then when I went to the station and realized that, hey, well, you know, these guys are still in the grieving process. That was kind of a, a shocker for me too. So just so you know, people that aren't aware of what, what occurred early on in Orange County Fire Rescue's history, Station 36 is down there on 535 near Palm Parkway. Yeah, it's on the backside of the Grand Cypress. Right. So in the in the tourist corridor of Orange right. County. Yeah. Right. And it was a, a souvenir shop, t-shirt shop. Yeah. We were caught on fire and uh, we lost two personnel. Uh, to a roof collapse, barrel tile roof collapse. One of the things I thought was shocking about that whole thing, since, like I said, the whole thing was like, I, like if I was looking for a job trying to get hired on the fire department and I was from the Orlando area, you know, Orange County area, then it would, I would have been more attuned to what's going on. So like I learned this stuff, like I was at 36 for about a month before I found out that, oh, this shit just happened. You know, I didn't, I had no idea. One of the guys that survived, right? Because two, three, three went in and only one come out. And one of, you know, the guy, Richard, Mar can I say his name? Sure. Talk. Yeah, so Richard Marcott was the, one of the survivors. And um, he got out because like, you know, when the ceiling went down, like everything above them, their heads was all like extra t-shirts. They like were using the, the loft as a storage area. So when they, when it collapsed, all these burning t-shirts and, you know, tons of dirt burning t-shirts just fell on everybody. And uh, Marcott was right by the, you know, the outside perimeter wall and he was on fire. His mask was melting and sticking to his face and, you know, he used his air pack to 
smash his way through the window. And like anybody who's a fireman who knows who's taking an ax to a, you know, a tempered storefront window, it takes, it's not like TV where they all just come apart with one tap, you know, and he had to pound away at it and eventually got, you know, but when you're on fire, I guess there's a lot of motivation there to get your ass out of there. And right. that's what he did. And Dan Bonacci was the acting engineer. You know, he hit him with the booster line and put him out. And obviously, I imagine, because like I've seen the videos, but it's been years since I've seen the videos, but I know it was just pandemonium. People just, because like two guys are in and, you know, panic on the radio. But that was the, the catalyst for our fire department to like pull its head out of its ass because that's where it was with uh, our upper management. We weren't back then thinking fire department. In fact, I think I've never mentioned this to you. The process when we... Got, when I was going through my two weeks of orientation, they would tell us for what your jobs are. They preload you. Hey, here's your jobs. And it was left in, right out. So if you were on the left side of the unit, you were outside. And if you were on the right side of the unit, you were inside. And it's like right off the bat, they divide the teams. So if you're sitting on the in route like we did, you know, throughout the 90s and later when we shit canned that stupid idea, we would be sitting on the truck. We got like couple of minutes and the first thing we would do is especially if you have two-man engine you'd be discussing what you're going to do hey i'll take the axe you do this i'll back you up we'll go in and then the lieutenant might say hey everyone i want you to think about this and we would talk right but if if you're doing all that and then right as you get on the scene it's like okay see ya and then you go someplace else and i'm going another place and you're going to hook up with i don't know some other people who were on the left side of the unit right you know so that's it just causes chaos and we didn't get rid of that until i had two until i was well into on the 52 you know, I, after I had two years on, maybe three years, we got rid of that stupid idea. But anyways, that was what our fire department was like. You spent some time at 36 and then you went to 52. Yeah. And as a firefighter there, you ended up taking the engineer's test. Yeah, yeah. And once you got promoted, where did you end up? Uh, then I was on the air and light truck. It was the air and light truck and the tanker 80. My, they told me my job was to empty the dishwasher, not even to fill it, not to clean bathrooms or anything else. Your sole job is in once in the morning and once in the evening, you empty the dishwasher. And I think I ran three or four calls in the four months there. And I knew that, like, because, you know, I'm a doer and I couldn't, I couldn't do that shit and do nothing but empty the dishwasher. So I started putting in transfers and whatnot, and I got 71, which is a busy station. It wasn't 52 because I was used to the south side because 52 is just like a couple of stations up from 36, you know, still right off I-4 um, by SeaWorld or between SeaWorld and Universal Studios. That's where 52 was. Kept putting my transfers in until I took me maybe about six months at the most, I think. And I got back to 52 as an engineer there. August. It was August again in 2003. August <laughs> is the month for me in the fire department. Everything seemed to happen in August. Even some of the career shaping stuff? Yeah, I mean, like you talked about when I got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I got I got one big trouble. I, you know, I was the okay in the in the first half of my career, we really didn't have any leadership. There was some good lieutenants like Gil Hodno, you know, John Garrett. I met some really good lieutenants. Bob Boone, Bob Boone was phenomenal. I'm not going to say any bad names, but we didn't have we had a but that was those were the exceptions. The majority of the lieutenants they weren't. Like they didn't train to become firemen. They were just like, you were like into someone's hunting club or fishing club. And I'm not going to say other stuff that, you know, they would just say, Hey man, I want you to become a fireman. A couple of months will make you a Lieutenant. And then that's what they did. And that's how we got 
You know, same thing with battalion chiefs. You want to be battalion chief? I don't want it. And it's like they would find some knucklehead that would want to be battalion chief. And boom, now he's a battalion chief, you know. So we didn't have actual good quality people with a few excellent exceptions. Like I said, I loved working with Gil, man. When he would float in. But so when 52, it was the three of us. It was two man. It was a three man engine back then. And it was me, Sam and Terry and um, everyone else. We our engineers would float in and float out. I float in and float in. Lieutenants revolving door for lieutenants and engineers. But it was always the trio. And we made me it taught me to become self-sustaining it's like when we would go to a fire because again there was no backup there was no two in two out rule i the the first 15 years of my career it's like i would be on the hose line by myself in the middle of a house by myself and i would have the fire out before the second engine got there or or i'd be backing the hell out because like i'm about to get killed let's get out of here but like i remember uh i was in a kitchen fire coming in from the side building and uh fighting it it's like this looks bad and all of a sudden, there was a big pop as the gas stove line blew. And a huge green flame just just filled my view. And it was like, holy shit. I almost dropped the hose. I didn't. But I just backed it up, got the hell out. And <laughs> I didn't go back in until we got more people on scene. By that time, you know, there was a couple of engines and we had water supply. But no one, you know, you, you, just, you just did it balls to the walls. And I can't believe we only killed the two people. With, the t- with that first half of my career that we didn't see any other deaths um, yeah. that were from that type of behavior. So, um, so I got in trouble because, like I said, we were self-sustaining. Lieutenants would come and go, and there was a shift. There was always a shift war. Well, mostly till Mal Huggins left. He kept C-shift pretty squared away. But when he left, they had some revolving lieutenants too, and they had some good people, and they had one or two that would just love to you know, start that rivalry between shifts. So our C-shift was a little bit on the crybaby side, and we started problems, and I ended up, I'll just make a short story short. Some guy got in my face, you know, and I pushed him, and he acted like a little baby, and, you know, and then we both ended up, I was at maintenance, he was a supply for three or four months, and I almost got fired. You know, I'm not taking any, I'm not like saying, like, nah, you know, I didn't have, you know, and it woke me up. I can't be this big mouth guy that thinks he knows it all, and it played cool. There's, you know, one more incident like that, and I'd be toast. That changed my my mindset quite a bit. That's what you're getting at? Yeah. Uh, I just remember remember the story being funnier. I know. (laughs) I'm I'm just not sure where to go. Uh, I don't know. I'm nervous. (laughs) It's all right. It's all right. But let's talk about your your leadership philosophy. I mean, I can tell the story. If you want me to tell the story. Well, let's, let's talk about your your leadership philosophy first and kind of how that developed. Cause you know, you've got a lot of experiences in Detroit. You ended up joining the army right. and what possessed you to join the army? Was there a family Adventure. history? No, 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 no. My dad, again, I go back to my dad. What a pussy he is. Uh, he joined the air force to get out of the draft. And then he didn't even do a full year before he wanted to get out on a medical. So my dad's a coward from the get go. Um, you can tell I don't really have a lot of respect for my father. He died just recently in April. My life worrying about him or always waiting for him to apologize to me never happened. So once he died, I just felt better about myself. You know, I don't have to wait around for a phone call to say, oh, I'm sorry, how I treated you. It's like, yeah, whatever. But um, people in the fire department would say, you don't like authority. And I'm like, I love the army. What I don't like is bad authority. I don't like some doofus 
who doesn't know the job. He's a terrible firefighter, and he's just using his position to bully and dominate somebody. Yeah, I have a problem with that kind of authority. I have a problem with bad authority. And it's like I never had a problem. Like Brian, um, Brian Morrow. Uh, he's a hard ass, right? Good fireman, hard ass, right? He was what he was my first really good lieutenant that I had in there. That it's like, and everyone's like, "Ooh, you're gonna." It's like I had I Brian is the one that really steered me towards my some of the things I need to do to, to do a better job in becoming an engineer uh, to, to to get doing better on the engineer exam. Brian Morrow was like an authoritarian, and he was fantastic, but he was a competent person. So it's like that's what I always point to is like as far as you know, you don't like authority. It's like that's bullshit. I just don't like incompetent authority yeah, he was uh he was my ship commander when i was a battalion chief he was an engineer when i was a firefighter and he's the one that taught me how to be an engineer when i went to pump ops yep. school and yes he uh didn't mince words he was very direct yep. you know he'd tell you how to do it and if you did it that way you were good so like i i had a military background it was easy for me to do exactly what he said, because if you did exactly what he said, you would accomplish your goal. It, it wasn't hard for me. And that's what I like about the Army, too, was that um, the, the Army was like, if you were a strong minded person and you could get people to follow you, the Army would see that and they would do everything they can to like bolster that. And it's like, so you see like media, movies, and people who didn't have the balls to actually join the military and then try to pretend like they are, you know, a lot of those in the fire department too. And it's like, they don't, like they would see drill sergeant movies and whatnot, and the movies would just show some guy screaming and yelling at somebody, and they would think that's what it was. And then if anybody who's actually been to any type of military training, that's week one and two is where they tear you down, right? And then week three, and the through 10 or 12 is build you up and and to make you know so it's like they want to like separate the wheat from the chaff there's certain people that are never going to make it they want to get rid of them quickly but if they just treat everybody like shit get everyone confused and scared and disoriented everyone is on the same page and then from that point on they know where everyone's mind is and then they can just start building up from there that's what i loved about the army i call it my great adventure is because it's like i i just ate that shit up i mean like I wanted to join the army ever since I was a kid. I mean, like I, I knew that when I was like six years old that I planned to join the army, you know, save the world, come get out of the army and get married, have 1.2 kids, a dog in a house and play Euchre on Tuesday nights. That was my goal when I was six. The army was, they liked, I mean, they would, like I said, they would, they would not, they would not, if the people would say, well, you just do what you told you, follow your orders. You don't think the army is the opposite of that. The army does not want dumbass automatons. The German army did. The Japanese army in the 30s wanted that shit. They didn't want anybody to think you just you're you're a, a trigger puller. That's all they wanted. But the U.S. Army wanted people to think because you people often heard the idea that um, on the first couple of minutes of a battle, the battle plan goes out the door. Right. And you got to start reacting from there. If you're not a thinker, you know, what I'm saying you ain't doing shit. Then. You're just going to hunker down and do nothing. The army wants you to go ahead and figure out a new battle plan. Come up with option A, B, C and D. And work those out on your own. You know, they that, don't want you to sit down and do nothing. And that goes into leader's intent. Yep. Basically giving the overall objective. Yeah, and exactly, here's yeah. and here's a plan that will get us from point A to point B. But if you're not able to do that, we need you to figure it out. Right. 
take take you know what the objective is the objective is to take the hill right and it's right. like well well we're supposed to get to have a truck to carry the shit up the truck was blown up it's like well now you got to figure out how to get that shit to the top of the hill without the truck it's like you don't just go well i'll just i'll sit here and wait for the truck to show up it's like you know it's not coming you know yeah. get the shit off the truck pick it up form a chain carry the stuff to the top of the hill whatever it takes but you don't just give up and you, and you have to think because like it ain't as simple as just carry the shit to the top of the hill there's a lot more steps in there that's what leadership is is, is that you got to get you know i can't do it by myself so i got to convince other people that hey that plan's gone now we need to start working on another plan someone's got a better idea i'm all ears but this is what i got and like when i was riding up as lieutenant it's like I was all about it. someone's like someone's got it. Like if I come up with here's what I think it should work. And if someone says, well, that's stupid, Dan, what about this? It's like, oh, I like that. Let's do your idea. And then yeah. I would support that idea. Lisa Mills. Boy, Lisa Mills was the one that's like uh, when she was because uh, she was stubborn and, and bullheaded just like me. And it's like, that's why I liked her so much. And it was like and she was a hard ass. It's like we went on a call and there was this uh, it was like a car leaking fuel right in a parking lot of a golden corral Two, I think it was like a wimpy firefighter male firefighter I can't remember who it was, but it was some guy that I knew didn't like to get his hands dirty. And it was me and Lisa and someone else. And all I know is when I looked underneath and I'm like, oh, there it is. It's pouring out and it's 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 coming out quite a bit. You know, it's like maybe an ounce a minute. You know, it's like it's coming out of there. It's like and you can see there's a big puddle under there that's probably six feet diameter puddle and it's like okay i'll take i start taking my dress shirt off to, to climb under there because i know i'm going to do it right and the next thing you know lisa i see lisa mills feet sticking out of the other side she's already got the putty in her hands and got the leak stopped and it's like before i could even get my shirt off she got in there with her shirt on you know what i'm saying their dress shirt you got it all messed up because she was a badass it's like, I, and that was like, I think the first day I worked with her when she transferred to our station and like, man, she came like, she had the same kind of reputation I did. It's like, oh, they, you know, people talk shit about her. Lisa Mills was one of the best firefighters I've ever had. And I worked with quite a few good ones, quite a few bad ones, but quite a few good ones too. Lisa Mills, she ranks up there. Back to the leadership uh, with me, Sam and Terry being the three that like Lieutenant would come in, you know, this place sucks and they'd leave engineer would come in this place sucks and they would leave and 52 was like the dumping grounds too you know i'm sure that's how i got there like you know jesus christ like me sam and terry were all like we were the island of misfit toys that's what i used to call us that's what i said i wanted our patch to be but the, everyone always wants some muscle animal with like jaws of life you know and i'm like <laughs> we should go with the we should go with like the charlie in the box and say 52 the island of misfit toys because that's what that's what well, at least that's what we were in our shift and the other shifts weren't much different. So if you had some lieutenant that had a crack problem, you know what I'm saying? You had some lieutenant that was or engineer that also had a crack problem. And uh, <laughs> where would you put them? Let's send the 52 with Sam, Terry and Dan. Either either maybe maybe those guys will run those guys off or Sam, Terry and Dan will run them off. It was like it's a win win proposition. That's what they that's what I'm convinced. That's what they did. I uh, had to say that we. I don't know. I, can't, I lost count of how many lieutenants and engineers we had come through there, but it was quite a few and they didn't last more than like weeks <laughs> where they would split until Brian Morrow showed up. Brian Morrow was the first like quality, you know, quality person, quality leader, professional, professional firefighter, lieutenant. He was a lieutenant. Before that happened, though, it's like we had to work together. It's like we had lieutenants that didn't care, that didn't want to really be there. They just wanted the money, the paycheck. 
and they didn't want to do the job. You know, lots of times, like I said, it was either, you know, Sam would be in there fighting fire on his own. I might be pumping the engine riding up or vice versa. Sam would be pumping me, you know what I'm saying? And Terry would be around, you know, back then rescue was in, you know, they wasn't too out. They were inside. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that Sam and T- like if I found, like if I came in and I'm exhausted and it's like, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, t- I'm tired. It's like someone else can go back in there. And they're like, well, Sam's in there. It's like, what do you mean he's in there by himself? It's like, fucking give me another bottle. I'll go back in. And I want to make sure Sam ain't going to get hurt or Terry, you know, but that's, that was my mindset. And I'm pretty sure I, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm pretty sure they'd have done the same thing for me. Yeah. In fact, I, they did, they did the same thing for me. And that's kind of why I, that fight I had is because someone was making fun of Sam one time and I, should have been smarter, but that's what happened is, is I was defending Sam when that guy got in my face. Let's hear the story. Let's hear the detailed ah, okay. story. And- so we've had a problem, ongoing problem with C-Shift because the engineer was probably bipolar, you know, and I'm not going to say his name, but he was a problem. But he was a smart guy, and he could have been a great, great firefighter, but he was more into st- causing problems. And even after he left the fire department, he had a website that was designed to tear the fire department a new asshole. And that's all it did. It was all about airing the dirty laundry and stuff. So it's like people would chime in in his chat page and just be talking crap about the fire department, talking crap about the union, you name it, right? Always talking crap about us, and me specifically. It don't matter. I was on the engine. I think I was driving or I was riding backwards. And um, Sam was given pass on, you know, he was driving the rescue. And he mentions like the O2s getting low. It's still good. It's about, you know, it's about 12, 15, 1400, whatever. You know, remember the cutoff. The rule of thumb was a thousand. I think the cutoff by the book was like 800 or something, but it was above both, right? It was even above the book and it was above the standard routine of a thousand. If it's above a thousand, give it to the next guy, right? And he'll, or it might've been, might've been about fuel, you know, like, oh, the fuel, it's a bit low on fuel. And if they didn't have an absolutely full rescue, they were going to cry. Like if you gave it to them at seven eights, right? They were going to, it's got two tanks. Second one's full. The other one's at seven eights. Not good enough. They were going to cry. So this started, this guy started to bitch and moan and complain. And I worked like a week prior, I worked a time trade or overtime on their shift and they had a student there and the student was like, geez, that guy's kind of a baby, isn't he? He was talking about the guy who pushed me. I'm not going to say his name. So I was telling the story, right? And Clay's on the, is on the other side of the dining room table, right? And I'm like on the, on the other opposite side, but also 10 feet away from it in front of the TV. And I was saying, I was standing here, he was standing there and I was telling the story and uh but what happened and i was pointing like clay was over there he's like hey man get your finger out of my face i'm like what the fuck are you talking about you know my finger we're like 15 20 feet away and he's like i saw put my finger out and he got up out of his chair and this is no shit was funny And, and he jammed his cheek into my finger and then grabbed my finger and bumped my chest and i'm like it was like the slow-mo, you know, like, uh, I was the Terminator in my head, like all the options, fuck you asshole. This cat is there a dead cat and you know, all the different options. And I ended up like, well, I'll just push him, you know? So I, I pushed him and cause he's such a pussy. He fell over and got up and yelled, you have been assaulted. I've been assaulted and ran off. And then from that point on, you know, it was all downhill. And I believe SO sheriff's office came out and, you know, it was like a whole assault thing. And then when it went to professional standards and everything, they even said in the professional standards, Clay claimed that the only reason that he bumped into his finger was he was going to get to the lieutenant to say that that Haran was um, improperly telling a story or something like that. And th- then, like, in the side note, as the, the inspector said, this sounded very doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> but, again, I also knew after becoming – I became a union rep afterwards because I thought I kind of got the raw deal with protection. 
And um, so I decided that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to become a union rep, make sure no one else gets fucked over like I did. I didn't, I mean, whatever. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't have pushed Clay. I shouldn't have pushed Clay, but I did because he's a pussy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, that's what pussies get. You know, you're going to, you're going to act like a clown. You're going to, you know, you're going to have to wear makeup. Uh, so that's that. That's, that's what happened. So like I said, he went to supply and I went to maintenance. And then, like sometimes when I would be like, they would give me like, they gave me the supply guy or the, the, the guys at maintenance. Like I had to drive around and pick up parts, mufflers and manifolds and brakes and whatever for all the different engines. Right. Where, and I started, like, I got a, a, a map book and I made all the grid coordinates and stuff. And I would write down, like, once I realized, okay, there's about 20 locations I'm going to, I'd put the map page and coordinates on the back of each card and I stapled them together in a fan so that you could just pick it up and go, okay, I'm going to like, Cummins, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, look, it's uh, here's the map page and coordinates, right? So you could turn to the map page and there's your coordinates. And then you, if you didn't know where it was, you, you it would help the guy behind me who's who's going to get the next guy that got into a fist fight at the station. He'd be able to figure <laughs> it out much easier than I did. And trust me, there was plenty of guys that came after I left. I handed my van off to many people. In fact, one of them was in the C shift, you know, the crew that I was with earlier. He ended up driving in my van. I remember saying, man, you better keep it clean because I cleaned the shit out of this when I got here. It was filthy. What, the, what was the guy's name that ran maintenance? He, not the chief, the guy in the white, Doug, Doug something. Uh, he said, you did more in like a week than the last guy did in the whole six months he was here. And it's like, well, I just don't like to turn around. I like to do shit. That's the way I ended up maintenance. Like I told you, and that, that was like, a, you know, from that point on, my stock went down quite a bit. and I couldn't run my mouth as often as I wanted to. But you still did a pretty good job. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. You know, <laughs> what's the point of, you know, Socrates said is, when, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. So <laughs> if I can't if I can't tell someone what a piece of shit they are, you know, what I'm saying when they're being a piece of shit, I don't want to fucking live. If some guy's walking around puffed up chest and arrogant for no goddamn reason, someone needs to inform him that he's an incompetent boob. Lest he think that he's like, the shit don't stink. Something about me being opinionated was that. <laughs> How would you sum up, like, if you were to explain your path to your leadership ideals and your leadership philosophy, you didn't just grow up in Detroit and turn out the way you are now. You've had some life. I don't know. I've thought about it. I think I. I don't think my experiences shape me. I think I shaped my experiences. My teacher in kindergarten told my mom that I'm either going to be the president of the United States or in prison. <laughs> like, that's what she told my mom, Miss Sibley. So it's like, you know, and then from Catholic school on, I'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that this guy fed all these people with just fishes, a couple of loaves of bread and some fishes? Doesn't, doesn't sound right. Does that make sense? I go, how many people were on this ark? And there was all the all the animals. It's like that. So yeah, I've I um I didn't get along well with the nuns either. Okay, so you shaped your experiences. I'm I, I'm I I pondered it. I thought and I'm not sure. It's probably a little of both, but I I don't think it's at fifty you know percent of either. I think it's the vast majority of. I I don't think it's nature. You know what I'm saying? I don't I don't I don't think I well, was nurtured. I, mean, I think it's nature. Okay, well, what experiences did you choose along your path to help develop yourself into who you are? Okay, here's an example. I was with a group of people that wanted me to, to fit into this group. I was supposed to get out of this car and beat the shit out of this guy. 
to prove that I was, you know, good enough to ride with this gang. And I'm like, okay, you know, uh, and I, I was in the back seat. We pull up on this guy and he's fucking walking out of a hobby shop. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a goddamn nerd. Star Trek models, you know, whatever. I'm a nerd on multi levels. But this guy had some balsa wood and some glue and he was building some kind of plane or whatever. And I was supposed to jump out and kick his ass. And all I could think of is, hey, man, that shit's fragile. You better watch it. Those uh, four foot inch, you know, quarter inch thick pieces of balsa wood will get snapped in the wind is what I was thinking to myself. What are you doing, Dan? You're supposed to be beating this guy up. And he looked at me and I walked up to him and said, hey, man, what's up? And it's like he had a scared look on his face. Like he knew he knew I was supposed to kick his ass and I just fucking couldn't do it. And I'm like, I told him, I said, hey, man, you have a good day. I was supposed to beat you up, but I just ain't going to do it. And he walked away. And then I walked in the opposite direction. I never went out with those guys again. And that was like uh, it was eighth grade. And I probably would have been killed if I hung with them anyways, because it's Detroit. So any any experiences similar to that when you were in the Army? I had one fight in, in the Army. In basic, well, that's a whole different thing. That's an adventure, not a fight. In Hawaii, I probably had two years on the fire department, two years in, in the Army by this time. And two years in the Army is like seasoned, you know? And it's not, not like, because the average person does three, three years, you know what I'm saying? Four for some. I had to do four years because of, my MOS, my job was more in detail, so they got to get the money out of you. The more complicated your job is, the more the minimum, the longer your minimum term is, right? So it's like, you know, infantry, two years, you know what I'm saying? The average, the majority of people, it's three years. Mine was four years, right? And I was in the CAV, right? And the CAV is just like, normally you would go to a lift company. You would go to like a, I would go to like a, a, a Huey platoon or a Cobra platoon or whatever, right? And then there would be, like they would just basically work on the aircraft. And when you, they went to the field, they would stay at like Tent City and never dig a hole or anything. And they, all they would do is fix the aircraft that would support people going to the field, right? But the CAV is a different type of unit where it's like we have all those, those helicopters. But in addition to that, we also have infantry, like a frontline unit. So it's like and organic is the name is what the Army refers to it as. The average infantry company, if they need to be transported someplace, they have to call the motor pool, a motor pool or a helicopter company. Can you guys drive us here? Can you guys drop us off there? Right. The CAV has its own. So the CAV infantry has designated aircraft that are part of the CAV that take them. So it's like if, if they want to go someplace, they go. Like these are our helicopters. No one else uses them. You know, like these are these are assigned to me. And uh, that's not the case with other people. So that's why it was organic. So normally I would have gone to like when I got my orders, they go, "Hey, where are you going?" like when I AIT. So when they got my orders, I said, "Yeah, I'm going to Hawaii, the 25th Division." They go, "Oh, that's a beautiful place. You're going to love Hawaii." It's like everything is great. Well, as long as you don't go to that cav unit. That place is the worst. And sure as shit, where I went. <laughs> and I'm grateful. Normally, there would be, there would be a, like a separation where there would be like the, they were called rotor heads and, and earth pounders, right? Because like normally you would have earth pounders all by themselves, and if they wanted to see someone who wasn't an infantryman, then you know they would, then they would, ha- they were called Cav Scouts, 19 Deltas, then they would have to like go to some place to see it, right? But you wouldn't see those people in your company. But since we're Cav, it's like their helicopters need to be repaired by people like me. So it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, going with them. So if they go live in a shithole, then I have to go live in a shithole. You know what I'm saying? So, but they're used to being these cocky because they're infantry and just, you know, they're supposed to be badasses. So they would say things like, you know, Hey, rotorhead, or you're just like, they, they would treat you like you're some kind of pussy or whatever. Right. But the cool thing was, is everybody in that, pl- it was one platoon. 
uh, B, B troop was, uh, they were all from Michigan or half of them were from Michigan. So it's like right off the bat, I bonded with them. So like they were my friends. Right. And, uh, I would, I'd go down there like and bum a cigarette. I'd watch TV, whatever. And that, those are the kind of the weekends and whatever. Those are my friends. That's where I hung out with. I had a, one or two friends on the flight line, but most of them were, were the 19 deltas, the scouts, the blues, this guy transferred in. He was already probably had four or five years on the fire on the, in the army. He trans, he just transferred from Germany he wanted to make a name for himself. So he just, instead of picking the toughest guy, because I was not the toughest guy, I was always this skinny, wiry kid, you know. I don't want to say Don Knotts, but I'm going to say Don Knotts. <laughs> uh, like I said, uh, up until then, I'd never want to fight. Every fight I always had, I always lost. But they would always tell me afterwards, I never want to fight you again. Because my goal was to make it, like, miserable. It's like, yeah, I'm going to lose, you know what I'm saying? But I'm going to make it to, you never want to fuck with me again. You know, otherwise I'm taking the other eye. I'm, you know, I would, I would just do whatever it took. So it would, it would be very cost ineffective to, to, to mess with me. Anyways, so this guy was, would, I walk in, I'm hanging out with my normal friends, guy named Oz. Everyone had nicknames. No one had names. It was, it was Blad, Oz, you know, Belly. And um, I'm, I'm hanging out with them. We're talking shit and I'm smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer. It's like a Sunday. Oh, it was actually a Saturday night. It was right before payday because nobody could go had any money to go out. And this guy starts chiming in and he's like, hey, what are you doing in here, man? Who let this guy in here? And I'm like, oh, I'll let him go on for a bit. And like, you know, Oz and whatever, all like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, hey, man, what do you, who let you in here? They're joking. And then he keeps going, though. He keeps going like, what the? And he stands up and he's one of those little bulldog guys, you know, short guy, you know, with like, but like built like a shit brick house. You know what I mean? He, he, you know, could definitely fuck me up. And I was thinking like, well, I'm, you know, these are my buddies. And it's like, I've seen every war movie made. I'm thinking from here to eternity. It's like, I'm supposed to go get my ass kicked and be, and just not give up. Right. Get beat up. Yeah. Stand up, get beat up. That's what I was going to do. And this guy's talking shit and whatever. And I'm finally like, well, he's like, let's step outside right now. And I'm like, I do not want to step out there. He's going to kill me. But I can't be a coward with these guys I've known in the last two years. So let's go get my ass kicked. Right. So we go outside and if you know, we got no money, you're not really wearing clothes. You're wearing your PT uniform. You know what I'm saying? That's what you wear when you got no money, you're doing laundry and stuff. And that's what I was wearing. I had like a t- white t-shirt on with the Cav emblem and the yellow, they're like the same short shorts that we had in the fire department, yeah. that was t- but uh, they were yellow. There was something wrong with us in this in the 80s, how we dressed. We went outside, and since no one had any money, and it was near the end of the month, when I looked up, there was people. It was a, It's a three-story building, right? And there was people hanging out of the windows on the third floor. They were coming out, stepping out to the ledges. You know what I'm saying? And there must have been 100 people looking. I'm like, I'm not just going to get my ass kicked. I'm going to get my ass kicked with like a huge sold out audience. Right. (laughs) And then as I'm walking out, I see the MPs sitting right there, leaning up against the Jeep with their helmet on, you know, and they just look at me like, are you guys going to break this shit up? And they're like, what happens? So I'm like, that's what I knew that it's all in. I'm all in. And I remember I just stood there and he's like, he's like one of those steroid kind of guys, but they didn't do steroids back then. And uh, he comes charging at me and I like, try to punch him as hard as I could. Like bang, bang. He put his, he hit his head straight into my chest and I just punched him as hard as I could in the kidneys. And everybody wrist kind of like buckling like this. No fucking way. Am I going to get a body blow on this guy? So he tried to grab me and I, I wrestled in lightweight a little bit in high school. So I st- sidestepped out and got out of it. So then he c- came beat me again. And this time I'm like, I'm fucking going for the center center shot straight in the nose 
aim for the eye, aim for the nose, maybe the, the upper lip, take this guy out. And he come running at me. I just stood my ground and I just threw one hard punch as good as I can and hit him square in the fucking nose. And he, his head hit my chest. And I thought we're going to, this time he's going to grab me. And, and he just went down to the ground like a sack of shit. And I'm like, whoo, but like I put every energy. It's like just that one punch that I hit him with fucked up my hand. So I had to use the other hand and I backed away and got like 15, 20 feet away again and stood my ground again. And like, I'm like, he got up right? Like a fucking bull. I'm like, oh shit. And he just come at me again. He did it like three times, three times. And then the last time he fell, but that he grabbed me and we went down and we tumbled, but he was already two. He took three good solid punches and he got a few licks on me at a certain point, but not many. And then he like, he just rolled over and said, all right, I give up. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know? <laughs> and then I just heard like a roar, like like I said, it looked like something from um like a Disney diorama with a bunch of pirates hanging out windows and shit, people with beards, you know. And it, like I said, it was like you know it was probably like midnight, eh, it's probably like ten o'clock at night. And then the MPs got in the car, flipped their lights on, and drove out of there. You know what I'm saying? And it was like you know, and then we so we went in, and I I went into the back upstairs, and but this time my too my shirt was all torn to ribbons. All I'm now is wearing is just you know, my yellow uh, short shorts. And uh, I got, so I'm in the bathroom and I'm washing the mud off me because it's Hawaii and it's at nighttime is always damp dew and the it's clay earth. So it turns to mud. I'm washing the clay off me and I start throwing up because like, you know, now all my adrenaline is wore off and I start to, you know, heave and throw up and he fucking walks into the bathroom and I'm like, oh, fuck. It's like, how do I get, it's like, I thought I got lucky and he, like I'm like, all right, let's go. And he's like, hey, you're not a pussy. And he stuck his hand out and shook my hand and he became my friend. <laughs> That's a pretty good story. That's my story. That was my one big fight. That was my, um, since I didn't play sports, oh, a little bit of wrestling. It was, uh, that's my, um, my go deep story. Like my football, good old day story. I've never heard that story before. The, the last Hawaii story you told me was about the, the drinking beer in the cul-de-sac under the street lamp. Yeah, that was a good one, though. That's a good story. <laughs> but uh, I got, did I tell you about the one where I almost got arrested by the, more of the MPs? No. I, this one was in the fire department because there's marijuana involved. Oh, okay. Okay, so being in aviation, there's certain, like, if you were in, if you were a cook in the Army and you got popped on a piss test, they're like, big deal. You know, go back to work because nobody wants to be a cook and they would never kick anybody out, right? If you were infantry, the same thing. It's like, oh, okay, that's it. No more smoking pot. I told you before. But if you were an MP or a nurse or in aviation, you got kicked out first time, gone, right? Just toast. When I first got there, and it's Hawaii, so it shit's growing on the side of the road. And I smoked a lot of pot in high school. So, like, they said you couldn't be addicted back then, but but I was pretty much addicted. I thought I was going through, like, revol- uh, you know. Withdrawals. Withdrawal symptoms in basic training. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but by the time I, a year in Hawaii, it was out of my system. But, like, I never I had a joint for some reason, and I said to my friend, Vlad, let's, you know, let's go smoke one. We'll just drive just out outside of the barracks and we'll park in the car across the street from the barracks and we'll smoke one. We smoked one, I had two. And I, I took the other one and I put it up in the sun visor and we were coming back and the MPs pulled us over because it's like, it's a cart nighttime, it's MPs. You know, that's, you know, driving while black, but in, in on a military base, if you're driving at nighttime, black or white, they're pulling you over. You know, that's just what you do. Because uh, chances are, no one's, everyone's driving somebody's car. Is this car insured? You got insurance? I don't know, man. He just said I could borrow it for tonight. 
So it's like, that's what the army's like, you know, no one really owns anything. Everything's borrowed. Right. And uh, so that's why they pull everybody over. He shined the flashlight in, he looked around, you know, and then he shined the flashlight right on the joint sitting up there. Now if you get busted in with, with actual possession, like you're, you're going to go to like army jail. And he goes, let me see your driver's license. I gave him my driver's license. And he goes, oh, you're from Detroit. It's like, and I'm like, yeah. It's like, how about them Tigers, man? They're about to win the pennant. And I'm like, and my friend Brad's like, he's like, uh, he's like, oh my God, we're going to get out of this. So I turn to him and I say, I hate sports. <laughs> Brad still, I talk to him. He tells the story. It's like, you stupid fucker. It's like, we're getting out of this. And what do you do? Is now the time to, to and try to impress this guy that you don't watch sports? You know, it's kind of what I'm doing. Like, can't you just say, yeah, how about them Tigers? And he goes, well, and he starts yelling at me. He says, let me tell you right now, they're one game away from winning the pennant, which they did. They won it. And of course, Detroit burned because when Detroit loses, they burn. And when they win, they burn. Detroit just likes to burn. He let me go. He took the joint. He broke it up on the side of the road. And he goes, I'm, he goes, where, do you, where are you guys? I go, right there. We're in the cab. And he's like, oh, I'm, he followed me back. And he didn't do shit. He didn't fill any paperwork. Didn't give me a ticket or anything. And he just let me go. I, I talked to my friend, Brad. I talked to him like once every month, once every two months. He brings that story up on every third phone call. I just can't believe you couldn't let it go. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I was, it's not like, I, I was, I've always been an asshole. You're pretty well read. Great chess player. What is uh, some literature that has influenced your thought? Oh, God. Uh, Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted Universe. That's my favorite. That's not my first book, but that's that's the one that if I could only remember, if I, can get, if I have, if I'm losing my memory, that's the one I don't want to lose because it's on critical thinking and it's the Demon Haunted Universe is about like in medieval times, you know, everything was blamed on fairies and demons and, you know, the comparison now to like uh, anal probing and, and uh, UFOs and Bigfoot, you know, and with, especially now with the whole Z nation and, you know, it's more important to have some critical thinking, but uh, Carl Sagan wrote a book and it was just basically on, on how it's like, like an uh, exercises on how to think things through critically, whether it's like a bullshit detector teaching you how to become to spot bullshit. Carl Sagan, what was the name of the book? Demon Haunted Universe. Demon Haunted Universe. I think it was his last book before he died. Oh, it's a good book. It's a killer book. And all the books I've ever read, because my wife wouldn't let me have them in the house, they all got put into the garage, and then they all got covered in mouse and rat shit and bugs crawling through them. So I ended up throwing it on. It must have been a ton of books. I mean, literally a ton of books. I, I get depressed. It's like, because I always wanted to have like a, a library or an office, you know what I'm saying? And you know, we had two kids and, and uh, there was no room. There's no place for me to have a room, you know? Right. But, um, I always wanted to have a room with, with books and so, uh, like fire department pictures and stuff like that. Yeah. Any, any other literature? Well, Brave New World. That's the first, the first book I read, like I read in the army, I read more books in the army because there's a lot of downtime, right? A lot of hurry up and wait. And right. it's like, I remember I read, pretty much all the books that I bullshitted my way through in high school and got like C minuses and whatnot on tests. Well, I never read the book like the outsiders and books like that brave new world. Like I, I never take it reading the outsiders. Well, not reading it. I never being told assigned the book, the outsiders and taking the test stoned off my ass. I used to love getting high taking tests and uh, <laughs> I'm reading it. And it, it was like, the, I used to say like getting the psychology of the questions 
so that you could read you could read the questions and go is the answer a b or so it's like oh wow if the answer is c this would be a cool book someone should fucking read this book <laughs> <laughs> so you know and i would and i would i would like uh get a, a I don't want to say mediocre grade, but just, you know, a grade that didn't fail. And I never read the book, but I ended up reading all those books in the army. Cause like, you know, when you go someplace in the army, there's, they have, they always have a big box of books for free. And I'm like, Oh, look, brave new world. Oh, look, here's the outsiders. I was supposed to read that in 10th grade, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I would, I'd read, so I read, but the brave new world was the first book that I read. That was like, that I read under my choice. Like I read it because I wanted to. And uh, that was mind blowing too. Who who wrote that? Huxley. Yeah, I know what you're you're talking about the the downtime when when I was in the Navy. One of my buddies was all into reading philosophy, and and so he passed on a couple of books, and then you know we geeked out talking about philosophy like mm -hmm. we were brainiacs, you know, talking about Nietzsche and right you know, the the Superman and uh Jean-Paul Sartre and just like existentialist stuff right yeah yeah I mean I read a little bit of Nietzsche some of it I, when I first read about it you know it sounded cool because I'm you know I don't want to say atheist I, I re refrain from being I'm more of a skeptic you know I don't want right. to commit to like there's no god you know what I mean uh because that's a belief so yeah. it's like I, I'm more like I don't see any proof of god if there is you know, that's cool. And if there's not, I'm cool with that too. But Nietzsche, um, kind of an asshole, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Also, because like his opinion, he was forcing it like, no, you're stupid if you don't believe what I believe, you know? And that's what I kind of got from a little bit of Nietzsche was uh, he was telling you this is my way or the highway with my, his thought process. Well, he, he went crazy with uh, the syphilis. Yep. With the, oh, he got the syphilis. Yep, yep. Yeah, and uh, there's... Uh, some things that I read that his later writings weren't really him. They were his sister that finished his writings. Right. Uh, when he was a lunatic. Right. Uh, I read a little bit of uh, Socrates's Plato. That was kind of good. But then once yeah. I found out too, that Socrates never wrote a book, right? It was Socrates' Plato. It was a uh, Plato wrote it. Plato was like his scribe. So Plato would have all these, you know, lessons and ideas, and he would dictate it to Plato and he'd write it. So it was Plato's book, but um, it was also had flawed philosophies. He would start off with, you know, like he would say, okay, what is good? You know, what's beautiful? And he'd add this, well, beautiful is this. And it's like, but what if someone doesn't think that? It's like, then your whole philosophy is based on incorrect formula. Right. Also, he's the one to come up with, uh, you know, the, like the three tiers of the gold people, people who were in charge, but they couldn't own property, but they were like, destined to be leaders of the you know then the people who were um silver they wore silver sashes and they were like the technicians and the uh, engineers and the artisans and whatnot and then there were the farmers and the serfs and the common people and they wore bronze you know it's kind of what star trek was with the red blue and yellow green because it was really green but but uh you don't have to bring it back to star trek <laughs> did we talk about me being a nerd I think we mentioned that earlier the the rest of this episode we'll um talk in uh romulan is, is that your favorite yeah. tongue i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i'm i'm a nerd but it's like uh i've never met anybody who could speak klingon that's the one that's uh but um you know it's great for a joke for a sitcom or whatnot you know but right. uh, i never met anybody who, you know who did that and i've always 
I still can't, I hardly have a hard time with English. I'm always impressed with people who are bilingual. Like I said, my dad is a racist asshole. And it's like, he would get like irate if someone was speaking Spanish, right? Like, God damn it. It's like, this is America. You know, it's like, yeah, dumbass. Why don't you learn some Spanish? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, so it's, but uh, you know, uh, he would, he would come unglued. And it's like, I, I, I always wanted, I always wanted to learn Spanish and French and English. Cause then I could go anywhere in the world. That's what they said. If you can speak English, Spanish and French, you can go anywhere. Talk about your, your father being a racist asshole and your son is biracial Yeah. now yeah. with, I mean, that's kind of a crazy dynamic there. No, it's not. Cause then anytime someone proves themselves who got brown skin, that's the exception. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, yeah, it's the exception. Uh, okay. okay. And then you, and if you just keep finding all the exceptions, like, oh my God, there's just what's the what's the likelihood of all these exceptional people? It's like oh, we're just. It's like we should play the lottery. <laughs> oh, that's, that was his mindset. That's that's his way out. You know. I gotcha. So but I knew where you're going with that because because he, he's a. I used to say Ar, my my dad was Archie Bunker, but he's Archie Bunker season one. You know what I'm saying? Because if you watched All in the Family, you know, by the time it got to the end, they toned him down a bit and they made them more funny and like, uh, you know, loving as a racist. But it's like, and they toned that racist shit down. But on season one, he was straight up racist asshole, you know, a selfish racist asshole. And that's my dad. So my dad is Archie Bunker on season one. Have you talked to Gavin about all this stuff going on with the the Black Lives Matter and how does that how does that talk go? Because I mean you're you're pretty white. Yeah, yeah. I guess Kim says is I'm the the whitest man she knows. Because <laughs> like I don't cast a shadow, man. That light passes right through me. <laughs> I am pigmentally challenged. I don't tan. I just get burned, turn purple, it peels off, and then I'm back to being white again. You got to wear sunscreen, SPF yeah. 50, yeah. if there's a full moon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That whole idea of the burka sounds pretty appealing to me. <laughs> Only chicks can wear it? That's bullshit. <laughs> That's sexist. Yeah. <laughs> the guy could be a waitress at, at Hooters. I could damn sure wear a burka. Can you tell me about, did you have a talk with Gavin? Yeah. He basically said, I'm playing Fortnite. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> That's what happened multiple times. Well, when he gets a little bit older. Right. 35, maybe. <laughs> I told, man, we start like. What I would do is when we would drive to my mom, my mom said she lives over in Clearwater, right? And, you know, that's an hour and a half drive, 45. Well, when I drive, it's an hour and a half. But like to normal people, it's a two-hour drive. So, uh, you know, it's a captive. So we would talk about stuff, you know. And I'd say like, hey, man, you know, you could identify yourself like as a white guy if you want. You could identify yourself as a black guy if you want. I said, you could identify yourself as like a, a black guy and a white guy, or you could identify yourself as neither. I'm none of those things. I'm just Gavin. It's like, you, you know, you have, you can do whatever you want, you know, don't be limited by what people say and do, you know, and he's like, whatever, dad, you're driving, you're drifting off the road. <laughs> he doesn't like talking about it. He's not a deep thinker. He's more like my brother, but he's smart. He's smarter than me, which I like. He, he will be a deep thinker. Because like, you know, when I was 15, you know, that's when my parents got divorced and I made the mistake of 
going to live with my dad to, you know, help him bear the load a bit. And like I said, it was a mistake because he's my dad and uh, he's Norman. And um, I pretty much from 15 on, I raised myself, you know, Gavin's going to be 15 in, November, and, um, in September. So it's like, that's like the big date. Like, that's when I like really became who I am is at 15. Like I never, we when were driving from, because we're, we're living in Florida, right? My dad came to pick me up. We moved to, my mom moved to Florida a year before, right? So I, I did eighth grade here in Florida because, you know, the laws were good for getting divorced. And then she divorced. And then, I, and my, and then I'm like, well, I'm going to go live with dad to kind of hold the family together. So he came down to pick me up and I drove back to, to Detroit. And I remember saying like, hey, do we have like soap? He's like, yeah, we got soap. I go, okay, all right, all right. Do we have like like forks and knives and stuff? He's like, no, but we can get some. <laughs> That's where I was going. Good. And uh, he would, you know, I had uh, pretty much all the way up until I worked at the Shell Station. That was my first real job at my senior year. I had like two pairs of jeans, you know, and I'd wash those jeans every day. You know, I used to get up at six o'clock in the morning, which was good. I thought about, I was thinking about it. It's like a... I had to get up in the army at six o'clock, you know, that's when like well, the basic training, it was four o'clock, but you know, when you were, you know, PT was at six 30 and stuff. So you had to get up at six o'clock and, you know, brush your teeth and shave and then go down for PT formation. And as like, so that was, I guess that was what early with people, but it's like, I used to get up at six o'clock from 15 on so I could wash my clothes and, you know, go to school. And I had the same, cause like I, he bought me two pairs of jeans a year and like, I don't know, the first pair would always get ruined. So I ended up with one pair for the majority of the year. And I had like four, four or five shirts, you know, and my dad would be like, here's $5, you know, for the week. And then I'd see him, you know, next week, you know, so that's, that's kind of how, how it worked for me. But like, even in the fire department, you know, six o'clock, my alarm would go off at six o'clock and I'd jump in, take a shower, brush my teeth and I could be at the station at seven. But it was good training, I guess, that I got up every day at, when I was 15 at six. But I, I, I said, like, I, I, I would call myself a feral child. No one taught me shit about anything. I had to learn it all the hard way. I'm a slow learner. So your experience as far as leadership goes in, in the fire department, of course, throughout your life, you're going to witness examples of good leadership and bad leadership. Right, and right. Mediocre leadership. And right. It's the same in the fire service. But for you, being a no-nonsense, opinionated uh, Irishman, Right. How often would you say you confronted poor leadership in the fire department? Uh, very often for the first half. It started to get better. Well, we start by 99, you know, the, the end of the 90s, we started getting good quality lieutenants. Some of the knuckleheads were retiring. I, I was really pleased because we had a terrible chief. You know, I'm not going to say his name because, but we had a terrible, terrible chief. He didn't know how to fight fire. You know, he was just a guy that, like, he could have worked at like, Sears, you know, or Ford Motor Company as an executive. He didn't know shit about anybody can fucking say, hey, get that done. You know, you don't know how we don't. He didn't fight. Like, he doesn't have any story. He never could tell a story about fighting fire, carrying a hose or driving an engine or or even leading a crew into a fire. He could tell a story about like how he broke a union up or something, you know, or how he, you know, he had he went to he, he was really good at negotiations. I mean, like he was one of those people that probably worked in the field for a year or two and then went to headquarters, you know, to kiss ass for the majority of his career. Then we got that chief auto drozd. And I swear to God, I had a fucking man crush on that guy. He was the best chief. I, I don't want to say because we had terrible chiefs, but it's like if we had good chiefs, he still would have been the best chief. Yeah. It was like going from going from incompetent moronic assholes 
who don't give a shit about the fire department who are just there for their own thiefdom, you know, to a guy that's like his goal was to improve the fire department. He cared if people got hurt, like, like uh, he was just a phenomenal chief, you know, people i would grow up and they would say things like an iso rating you know it's like oh we're never gonna get a good iso rating it's like we're happy with a five or a six you know it's like because oh, that's good enough you know the insurance isn't too high for the businesses when he did it he got us a one it's like holy shit i didn't think that would ever happen and it's yeah. like and then you know it's i'm sure it's gonna be pissed away you know soon don't want to say any more on that but holy shit he's just so i i, I experienced awful we had a lot of mediocres that weren't bad. You know, Floyd didn't know him well. He was, he was, he was a, not a bad guy. I, I only, you know, he left, he wasn't the chief anymore by the time I had six, seven years on. And then we had those, they would actually put those two chiefs that they were one guy, they came from County. They were just County administrators. They, they literally didn't have any EMS or any fire credentials. They were just County managers. They were so incompetent. I mean, like they, because like they couldn't even deal with a camera in their face without like saying racial shit or stupid shit to get them in trouble. Cause they came over to visual vis, visit Tangelo, which where our station was. And they like, I remember that guy Wagner or Warner, whatever his name was. And he just stepped all over himself. Boom. He's fired. It's like they, they were just so quick on terminating these people. And then, you know, it's back to the mediocre chiefs and stuff. Icona wasn't a terrible guy, but Plogger was a nightmare. He was awful. Dishonorable. I mean, just not an honorable person. Then Drozd was just phenomenal. So, yeah, that's my experience with good and bad leadership. And leaders, like I said, uh, Gil Hodno comes to mind. John Garrett uh, was the lieutenant at 52. And evidently he was a chief before they consolidated, a battalion chief. And he had to take a demotion when they consolidated because they had too many already. I guess all the butt kissers took the real jobs and the quality tra uh, lieutenants and leaders or chiefs couldn't, you know, they ended up going back to being lieutenants. But thank God, because uh, he was one of those old guys in 1990 that like listened to new ideas. You know, the chalk talks, he used to call them chalk talks where he would just, it was like the simulators that we had before computers because in 1990, no one had computers. And he would take the dry erase board and he would draw the map of like the days in and he would give everybody a dry eraser right he'd hold it like like it was a, a record like a a, a a radio and he would talk you through like okay dan you're engine 52 lieutenant joe bob you're gonna be you're gonna be an engine fit 31 and you're gonna be you know and you it was like role playing the fire and he would describe to you he had he'd take an hour to draw it all out and then like you say after lunch we're gonna have some training and we'd go in there and we'd spend an hour doing a simulated fire with the dry erase board I mean, in 1990, I mean, that guy's a fucking head of his time. That's like, like they have simulators that suck at doing that job. And he did it with a fucking dry erase board, you know, superbly. But anyways, that was a good leader. Like I said, we had a few, Gil Hudnall, John Garrett, and a few others, you know, Bob Boone, I mentioned him too. He was a great lieutenant. Well, for somebody coming into the fire service, what is, what is some advice that you would give, you know, a 20 something year old probationary firefighter. Okay. All right. Well, we're starting about new firefighters because I'm, I don't know where to go on this and I wasn't sure, you know, when you get to a certain age, you start to turn into the old guy about yelling at people for being on your lawn or whatever. And you become that old guy, get off my lawn. This ball's mine now. And it's like, so I, I'm hesitant to say this, but it's like, but I think I, I'm not sure if it went away and people would label it millennials, right? 
But then I also worked with a crew that was all millennials and they were like superb 72 crew. And they all, and I met a few good ones that were like, they're millennials. And like, this guy's like a go-getter, right? Like, cause like we had, when we went to the fire Academy is like, it co- it only cost me $117. And that was with my insurance. Right. And that was 1987 and 1988. Even if you factor in the cost of living, it would still only be like $500 or something. It wouldn't, but what it's probably $5,000 is what they probably charge now, right? Because it was like three or $4,000 when I retired. And it's like, if you're going to pay all that money, you know, they'd get their ass sued if they don't just guarantee them a fucking certificate when they got out of there. You know, I paid you $5,000, goddammit. Where's my fucking certificate? It's like, I'm going to sue you. Go to court. And everybody would be constantly going to court. So it must have been pretty hard to get kicked out of the fire academy. But when I was in the fire academy, if you fail two tests, you're gone. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no question about it. It's like, you fail two tests, you're out. You know what I'm saying? You you get mouthy. You get, I think if you were late three times, you're fired. You're gone. And it's like, no excuses. Like, I don't care. I was in a car accident. I had to save this lady's life. Oh, third time or fourth time, whatever it was, you're fired. You're gone. You don't get, you know, and it was just that easy because it would only cost a hundred bucks, you know, 120 bucks. So it's like they could afford to do that. And then you had to bust your ass. Like I was doing drywall, you know what I'm saying? And I had like fighting traffic to get there. I did mine. Mine's a six month thing where I did it on Mondays and Wednesdays and Saturdays. It was a pain in the ass six months to do that on top of getting my EMT you know, to go with. And it was a lot of work. So I jumped through a lot of hoops. And I remember like being like three quarters of the way through the fire academy, 11 o'clock at night, driving home, no one on the road now. So it was easy traffic. And uh, that's where I learned all my, my emergency driving skills was getting to the fire academy. You know, I was really good at shoulder of the road doing oncoming, <laughs> not quite, but, um, and I'm thinking like, what if I go through all this shit and I, I don't get hired? Like, I, I had no idea, you know? And then once I got done, I just started putting applications out everywhere, you know? And I was about ready to go back in the army. I went and talked to the recruiter, took my test and stuff. I was going to go back in. Yeah, we can keep, we can keep all your rank. You can go right back in. You've only been out less than two years. We can, I, I'll sign off on that. We can keep all that shit. And it's like, I was like a week away from going when all the phone calls started happening at once and I got hired. So like, but I was like starving. I was literally starving. I had no food. You know what I'm saying? To eat. And I was running out of money. I was running out of everything. And I was grateful to get the job. So I I, I said, I, I don't want to say it's a millennial thing. It just that's just sounds like it's too easy to blame all a fucking broad brush, paint the whole generation of they're all lazy bastards. And that's bullshit. I can't it, I just refuse to accept that. There was oh it's, there was something there that like for a while we just got we got so many shitty firemen that like I couldn't tell maybe it was the people we were picking because Plogger was Plogger was the one picking our new hires and it's like we were just picking candy ass after candy ass after you know none of them wanted to go to the field they all want to do the minimal amount of time this one guy said my goal is to get out of the field as quick as I can and get to headquarters where the real action's at there was I met so many that were like that and they just expected like you know, I got six months on. I expect you to treat me with the same respect you treat the battalion chief. Like, and that was the attitude. And I couldn't tell if it was a generational thing or if it was just the people we were hiring. Because I met some, and then by 2005, 2006, it was all the Iraqi war, war veterans were coming home. And we just got a shitload of good firemen that were like, they were just, they were ready to rock and roll. So the worst thing we ever, like after 9-11, everybody wanted to be a fireman. On Friends, they're all wearing New York Fire Department t-shirts and shit on the TV shows and Rescue Me. I st- that's, that was my nickname for the crappy fireman that we were getting was the Rescue Me fireman. You know, they wanted to fucking 
they didn't they they wanted to walk through the fucking the fire and shit telling about their how they got laid last night you know you can't motherfucker we're looking for a dead kid let's go you know shut the fuck up do your job you know we're doing like i i had people that were actually whistling and humming during cpr thinking that they were funny and clowning around and shit and these guys were smart people that could be great great firemen but were they just didn't give a shit about the patients I'm hoping that that changed. I'm, I'm hoping that changed. I was fortunate on my last two or three years, I worked with the fucking best f- young millennial firefighters I ever worked with. And uh, that's what changed me. That's why I realized it can't be a millennial thing because it's polar opposites. It's like this group is just, it was, I don't know. It was kismet that we all just good quality people that bumped into each other and we all cared about each other. We all wanted, we all were funny. And there was one guy that was trying to piss everybody off. And I tell him, it's like, it doesn't matter what that guy's doing. It's like, we're out here. We're told to get out here and do this and do that. Let's just do it. We're having fun. Are we not having fun? You want to go inside where it's cooler with that guy and not have fun, but not work. I'd rather be out here, sweat our ass off and work but have fun and laugh for four or five hours, you know, as opposed to go inside and be comfortable and be miserable and pissed. And that's kind of what we did. And it was just, it was, it was awesome. It was a good crew. Alex, Tommy, Nito, Jen, Jen Taylor. She's right up there with Lisa. Who did they miss? Oh, uh, uh, Kimberly Ingman. Good yeah. firefighter. She made it. She made it. Didn't uh, yeah. Jen she's, and they both made lieutenant or something, didn't they? Last time I talked with Jen, she's an engineer, and uh, Kim Engeman did make lieutenant. Yeah, she, were... she's actually been a lieutenant for two or three years now, I think. And Alex, oh my god, he I met, I worked now throughout my career, I almost never worked for or worked with crappy paramedics. I, I, I was blessed on the south side, like Tom Nile kind of a jerk, but like he was my measuring stick for what the best of the best medics used to be like. And Alex was, even though he had a 10th, his experience, Alex was like that. Alex was a phenomenal, a phenomenal medic. And I like that guy, he probably ended up being a doctor because he was just, he just wanted to learn everything he could. Uh, Don't tell me, I can't remember his last name. He was, his dad was our, um, Oh, Rawls? Yeah, that's it. God, I'm sorry, Alex. Forgot your last name. I'm an old shithead. I want to say he's an engineer hit on uh, on the squad. I know. Yeah, I know he's a squad. He squad. definitely he wanted to do manly things, but he also wanted to be a paramedic. Not that paramedic isn't manly. He wanted the squad stuff. He just he because he was young. I think he was 18. You know, and I said I'm saying like, he was as young as young, and he was not a privileged kid. He just wanted to. He wanted to learn and he wanted to be the best firefighter, the best medic he could be. And he was yeah. Tommy. And I'm, I know I didn't mention him enough, Tommy and Nito, but it was a kick-ass team. Excellent chemistry. Excellent chemistry. Talk about Tommy Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we really did end up with a lot of really good, talented, intelligent firefighters and paramedics. And funny. I mean, funny as the day was long. I mean, I, I, I would literally feel like I just did like ab crunches because I was laughing so much. You know what I'm saying? And that's a lot for me because, you know, I'm not a guy that likes to exercise. But so I got it through laughing. Yeah, the podcast is titled uh, From Members to Excellence, kind of alluding to crashing and burning and coming back from pretty dark times, I guess. Right. So yeah. like, the, like the time that I had with Clay when I almost got fired. 
Right. And That'd be my crash. You came back, but there's there's that it's kind of like a cloud that hangs over you initially. Would you would you agree? It is, but like I don't I don't let clouds. I always try to do the right thing. Uh, whatever I always think above all honor, 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 honor. Always have honor. What's the honorable thing to do? You know what I'm saying? And it's like I always do what I think is the most honorable thing to do. And it's like if if I tell myself like it's embarrassing you know i I almost got fired i gotta go back to the it's like i didn't give a shit it's like i'm gonna fucking drive on again and do the i guess that's where i i became my engineer you know made number two on the list i wanted to be the best fucking engineer i could be so i don't let clouds dictate what my actions are going to be people don't like me fuck off (laughs) would you say that's me yeah no i'd say that's you to a t Yeah, I mean, we've had some some really good conversations. You know, I, I've uh, made quite a few mistakes and I did get fired. I've had to deal with those repercussions and try and you know, just work really hard at bringing myself back and, and make sure that I'm better for having gone through those experiences. Yeah, because it's like if you don't learn from it, then you're just giving yourself hardship with no payoff. I mean, one of my favorite lines is you don't learn by doing it right. You know, you learn by doing it wrong first, you know, and if you don't learn from it, you're just doing it wrong and you're just a fucking dumbass, you know, you can, so you, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make mistakes. You know, you gotta make mistakes. That's how you learn. Yeah, it's hard to, to not feel like you're the biggest dumbass in the world when you when you fall on your face like that. It's it's that rebuild where you, it takes a, a good amount of self-talk. Right. <laughs> I was the new kid at a lot of schools. Like we talked about like I, I was born in Detroit, right? But it's like I moved to Toronto. So I went from Detroit to Toronto, back to Detroit to Florida back to Detroit again. And then, then the army, I was, I was the new kid a lot. And after a while, it didn't bother me. It's more like, all right, let's go find the kid that wants to kick my ass first. And let's get that over with. As far as lessons that you've learned that maybe somebody could, could take to heart. Fuck man. I can't follow my own advice. (laughs) I know I, I, that voice. It's like people say, Oh, that voice in the back of my head. I hear that voice every t- fucking time I screw up. I just don't listen to it. And it's like, I regret it every time I, I, I have listened to it. And a few times I said, thank God. I, one of those rare times I listened to it. And it's like, that would have cost me big time if I didn't do this or do that. And it's like, I don't know what to tell you. You got to make your own mistakes. You can't be afraid to make a mistake. You can't, you know what I'm saying? And uh, what dictates me is always I, my goal in life, this is my overall goal in life, is to know everything about everything. I'm not going to meet that goal, but that's my goal. And I'm going to do that with honor. And it's like, if I'm fucking trying to learn everything I possibly can with honor, when I'm 96 years old, I'm going to like try to continue to learn and I'm going to try to maintain honor. And that's just that. If I fail, I fail, but that's what, that's my goal. You got to go. You just got, you got to just do it. Now, one of the things, I think it was our last conversation, we kind of touched on it. I have some things that I put on my website. There's a lot more research now than when I first got hired about PTSD and, you know, the effects uh-huh. of years in the fire service or as a first responder. You told me that. The one thing that I'm ashamed of is um, early in my career, and this is the time I listened to the voice. Wayne Reddick, a good guy, right? He was having a baby and we went on a call where a kid was killed in a violent car accident. And then the, the driver of the motorcycle was cut in half and 
there was another like a 13 year old kid that was cut in half by the bike accident and it was bodies in the roadway and then like it was two or three cars in a convoy going to universal studios so you know when the other car caught up to find out they were all in shock and i think an old guy had a heart attack when they found out that that the baby was dead and whatever but it was a really bad call and it was before gavin kim was even pregnant with gavin but wayne was was uh he said it kind of shook him up and I thought to myself, and thank God I never said this. And I, and Wayne, if you're listening, it's like, I apologize for thinking it. I thought you were a pussy because you were freaking out over this shit, right? And then Gavin come along. And holy fuck, was I hypersensitive to it. And that's why I'm ashamed that I even thought that those things, Wayne. Because when Gavin came, it's like all those dead kids I, I, I ran on or, you know, just that were, you know, they didn't, they just didn't register with me long-term like I wanted to get them and I felt good every time like we gave like you know I ran on a bunch of pregnancies you know where four or five of them I was like either catching or assisting with the catching and I was super happy about like oh the kid survived and like the one where the kid died and later on that I thought the kid survived I used to tell the story the kid survived and then I talked to the mom like five six years later or the grandmother and she said no no the baby died like two weeks after that because she was, it was premature. It was a crack baby, but it was premature. I never, and it, it just didn't bother me. Like it bothered me a little bit, but like it didn't, when Gavin was born, it just, it crippled me. And I, I, I couldn't function almost for an hour or two. And if I even thought about it on the next shift, it would still cripple me. And I really had to use mental discipline to stay on track after Gavin was born. And then I, I slowly got, you know, when Gavin's five, six and seven, you know, I got used to it again. And then it would still, I'd see a kid that had pajamas that were like, like Gavin's or whatever. And it's four o'clock in the morning and his dad's selling drugs. You know what I mean? Out the front living room and his mom's having a chest pains or whatever. And it's like this little cute kid with his racing car playing on the nasty, dirty floor at the drug house is like, that would bother me too. All that shit. When I, that first year I retired, it was like I was on extended vacation. It still didn't register, you know? I still like, who the fuck am I? You know, because Kim is like, you know, working for the fire department still. And I would, we'd be talking. She'd come home and tell me about the stuff that happened. And I'm like, yeah, tell me some union stuff. I tell Andre, I said, hi, that kind of shit. And then I would, I would say like, well, what are we going to do about it? What's, and I, I mean, what, what are you going to do about it? Because it's like, it was, a, I was no longer on the team anymore. You know, and like I'd hear the sirens and go, ah, oh, the good old days. You know, I remember I used to bitch about going on a stupid fucking auto accident, you know. And now I would love to go on a bullshit auto accident, put a seat collar on somebody, get their ID out of their wallet and start writing down their personal information on a clipboard. Uh, that, that'd be awesome. But then after that time was up, the vacation, I thought it turned out that, no, I'm not on vacation. I'm not going back to work. I retired. That's not me anymore. You know, a little bit of an identity crisis. Who the fuck am I? I'm not Dan, the man, the fireman anymore. Now I'm just some old guy yelling at people to get off his lawn. <laughs> oh God. After a, a year, a little over a year, I could not stop crying. It's like I, all the calls, all the calls that I just put away just crushed me. I mean, they were coming back and I would wake up in the middle of the night and I like, I'd wake up at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And I could not sleep. I'd be out pacing around in the kitchen and, Whatever, man, I just, I, and, and it, it really hit me hard and it lasted for two years and it's by, by, my second or by two years off, three years into the retirement, it started to slowly fade. It didn't go away overnight. It slowly stepped down. I took about another year, by the time I had four years off, it, okay, it's over with, I got used to it. And the last year 
you know, I'm cool with it now. It doesn't bother me at all. And I've talked to Ski. Me and Ski had some really cool, bizarre calls. And I just love talking to, you know, him about it. Some bad calls. Like Ski was on that call with the motorcycle too. I I definitely had the PTSD. And anybody who said that shit to me while I was on the fire department, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I thought they were kind of a pussy, but it's like they weren't. I was just a dumbass. And, and I, I know for a fact, I never said it. I never said anything to somebody because it would, I, it sounded like if in my head, it sounded cruel to even think it. The one I, 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 I thought the most was Wayne. And I just, after, cause like it wasn't two years later that Gavin Kim got pregnant and Gavin was born and it was so fresh that like, I don't think I ever mentioned it to Wayne. I might've, but I always said, I always thought to myself, I always felt bad for thinking it, but uh, anyways, love you, Wayne. I would imagine that anybody that worked any amount of time in a busy department running those kind of calls would have some degree of post-traumatic stress. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have said then, but now you got to. You got to. Okay, me and Joe Sylvester, back when me and Joe, I was on, like, I used to float to 50 for, I don't know, three, four months. Because, you know, they're like, trying to punish me. <laughs> Can't shut that kid up, so let's just send him to 50 for three months float him there that'll be funny <laughs> that'll shut his ass up so i used to float there and obviously the new guy floating in they take the people off the rescue because that rescue gets their ass beat that was back then i think that was the busiest unit in orange county busiest rescue so like you know when you can float there you know damn well unless you're unless you're gonna need a driver and everyone there could drive so you're gonna be on the rescue joe was another excellent medic i liked working with joe he was funny too we're doing a call and it was one of those days where you ran all you know every hour and 10 minutes you run it all day you're running all night you lay down you close your eyes you let out that exhaust like and then boom the alarm goes off again you know and then you get up and do it you know and it was like four o'clock in the morning and i remember i could barely keep my eyes i was thinking to myself i'm gonna run somebody over I'm going to run somebody over. I can't keep awake driving the rescue. It's like, God damn it, man. They should have 12 hour shifts with you. Let's, let's, like let's paint a picture of Holden Heights. Where state yeah, I was going to do that next. Okay. You, you go ahead. It's a small community, single story homes, concrete block. Most of them. A lot of trailers mixed. It's like a check checkerboard, uh, 1940 Florida style homes, you know, and trailer parks. So There'd be like, they just squeeze in a trailer park in a vacant lot, put in like 15 or 20 trailers. And then there'd be some, so it was a very low income housing and it wasn't black, but there was a lot of black and there wasn't, it was, it was a mix of white and black. It was the poor people in central Florida lived in that area. And so low income apartments. Right. And then what was the one that would always burn timber scan? Yeah, yeah, yes. That would did that one finally go like a couple of years yeah, after my retirement? They finally sh- it was condemned, wasn't it? Yeah, there was still people when I was working as battalion four. There were still right. people living in there. There was yeah. I don't believe there was any water or electric. Yeah, I remember that. It was in the news. I stopped watching local news after a while too. But uh, yeah, it was in the news because I felt sorry for the people. It was like during. It was like the people had no place to go and the landlords were ripping people off, taking their money. And like, they weren't really the legal owners. And so there was a lot of that going on too. The people were just, they were the ones that had nobody to speak for them on, on their behalf. I'm glad you're doing this. And I'm saying it this way because, because that's what I wanted to get at. But for the call type we went on when you're burned out, right. And you're running this for say two or three years, every single shift, or you're running 20 calls a shift in a 24 hour period. 
right? And it it's you just get burned out and dead tired. You're walking like a zombie, and you and your humanity wanes. You like start to don't see them as people anymore. You see them as things in your way, you know. And that's what happened to me at this one. It, it was I had like six years on, so I, it's not like I was super veteran. I was only at that station for three or four months. But it was four o'clock in the morning and it was a rape call, uh, uh, sexual assault. And it was one of the ones where the cops are there first, right? So there's like 15, you know, SO squad cars there with their lights flashing. And it's in the poor neighborhood where they don't have street lights. So the flashing red and blue lights are what was lighting up the area, right? It's a couple of the houses are abandoned. They're wood frame houses that are up on blocks. And they're, they're abandoned. So most of the lights don't have any light. There's no porch lights on anybody abandoned or otherwise. So it's dark other than the illumination of the 20 cop cars lighting up the area with their strobes. So the, the SO is leading us on scene. So that means the SO has been on scene for a while. Normally you go on this, it's a body and you're going to fucking throw on a, the monitor, run a strip and go, yeah, they're dead. This case, they're bringing us back. And, like, and it, it reminded me of the scene from Apocalypse Now, where it's like when they come up to the bridge and there's like Christmas lights strung all over the place and there's artillery rounds landing and it's kind of surreal. And the guys, you hear like music playing in the background, some gar, guy in a guitar rift and there's some sniper out there yelling, you know, fuck you, GI, fuck you, you know, and, and <laughs> the guy's like, you know, like get the roach and, you know, hey man, do you know who's in charge? And it's like, yeah, I do. You know, and it was just, it was like a, like a, like I said, a surreal moment. And they let us back. No one seemed, ever, the cops were dragging their ass. We were dragging our ass. It's probably three o'clock in the morning. And we get there and it's this lady that was like beat up, right? And raped and like just beat up. Like her face was all swollen, you know, her bruises beat up. I can see shit. And she's like, just broken glass everywhere. She's laying on broken glass. She's laying on like burned clothes, you know, probably shit, you know, cause it's a crack house. So there's probably shit everywhere. I'm sure I'm stepping in. I know for a fact, I wasn't watching where I was stepping anymore. I didn't care if I stepped on shit or not. It was that kind of a place. And as we're picking her up and putting her on a back, and it was just me and Joe, like the engine didn't get there. Just me and Joe. Of course, the cops don't want to fucking dare, you know, get their hands dirty by helping us roll, roll over and put her on the backboard. You know, I don't know nothing about that shit. And it's like, uh, so we, we put her on a backboard back then too. We weren't transporting. So real Metro got on the scene. We put her on the stretcher and sent her off. Right. And then we get back to the rescue. I never say to Joe, it's like, I just felt awful that she didn't get my full concern you know like i did i did everything right i got her all packaged up but i didn't have any empathy for her and that point on i never let myself get into that trance again that's what i was telling i never told that story to uh the guy that was humming on doing the cpr and whistling but that's what i should have i should have taken the time to tell that story to him yeah because he's better than that and I wanted him to know that, you know, so I, I've been where he was and I wasn't like being holier than now. Just didn't want him to make my mistakes. You know, everyone's got a call that haunts them. That's one of mine. I got more than that, but that's, that's one of the calls that haunt me. And that's one of the calls that I could have done better. I could have been a better human being. Outcome would have been the same. She was out of it. Could be a head injury. Could have been, she was on drugs, but I'm just saying that's what happens. If this, this would have been 95, 94, 96 at the most. We didn't have much support from management back then. But thank God, I, like I said, I worked with Joe. 
Charlie Kreider. Huge crybaby. Excellent medic. If you had a fucking broken ankle, he's the last guy you want touching him. But if you had an arrow sticking out of your eye, that's what you want. You want Charlie Kreider fucking there. Charlie Kreider, if you were seriously in life and death and you were going to die, Charlie Kreider would save your life. If you haven't pooped in four days and you called 911, Charlie Kreider's going to cop an attitude. He was a good medic. Tom Nile, great medic. Terry Hawkins. Terry Hawkins was like, he put himself through medical school. Great medic. Oh, and then also that one guy that was at 53, he was a PM only. And people hated the uh, paramedic onlys. And he was like the first one that was like this guy. He was Air Force. That guy was, I can't remember his name, but he was a fucking super trooper too. Another great medic. Scott Woods, another great medic. He floated the 52 a lot. Plus I floated the 54 a lot. Scott Woods, a lot of good calls. Good friend of skis. I, I was just lucky to work with a lot of good medics. And a few times that I worked with shitty medics, it was just so far and few between, it didn't matter. And how would like, you classify uh, a shitty medic? Didn't give a shit. Rescue me. I uh, wanted to do it for the money. Didn't like running the calls. I just want the extra buck 50 or whatever I end up getting to two bucks an hour. And it's like, can an EMT do this? It's like, you know, aren't you getting paid to do this? It's like, you just shouldn't be doing the job. It's like, give up, give up your medic. You know, if you don't want to do it, give up your medic. It's like, no, that's $5,000 a year or whatever it would be. Or are they doing it for the prestige only? Not because they gave a shit, you know, not because they gave a shit. They didn't. And there wasn't, wasn't many of them, few EMTs like that, but the medics were more, because like if you were a crappy EMT, it didn't matter. You know, it was always Orange County had like overwhelmingly, we had X, I used to grade when I would say like, um, I go, oh, we're working with Rural Metro, right? Or, or Health Central, right? Whatever, the, what are they ended up being called eventually? Health Central, I go, oh no, their medics are as good as ours. They're good medics, you know, because like they had quality people. Our EMTs were excellent. Like, especially the east side, since that's where we should have transport. It's like everybody on the east side, all the EMTs over there were just jam up. And it's like an eventually when we all became transport. I, I, I prided myself on being a good EMT. Bar from that story I told you, that was an anomaly of just burnout. I prided myself on being a good EMT. I would fill myself with pride when if I saw like a, a, an old lady, whatever, that had dementia that I helped out and she would see me on the next shift and thank me and whatever. It's like, I just felt so great. Deliver a baby that lived or whatever. That was, that was awesome. I, I'm afraid I'm going to leave names out. So I want to say Brian Onkust because it's a Brian Onkust was also funny too. But yeah. he's not a good medic. See, like I always thought that I would be an excellent medic in the AM, you know, it, or <laughs> in it, like at two o'clock in the afternoon, I would be all over it. But like at four o'clock in the morning, I was just happy to fucking make sure this guy had everything. I was supporting him as best I could and doing it. It's like, thank God I ain't making that decision. You know, it's like, I'm just, you know, I'm here. And then, of course, my last five or six years, I was on the clipboard and barely even got thrown up on, you know, all I was, was the goddamn scribe. Get him, get me an ID. Get me an ID. That was my fucking goal for the last five years. It's like I, I missed, I missed, you know, getting in there doing CPR or running the drug box. You know what I'm saying? Fucking being Johnny on the spot when the medic fucking sticks his hand out and says, give me, I'd hand him the right thing that he wanted. That always made me feel good. You know, and yeah. if the medic said, oh, fuck, man, you made that code easy. You made it easy. I just fucking gave you what you needed. So what's your best memory? Your best memory in the fire service. Oh, in the fire service. Oh, okay, I was going to say that was that one chick in Korea that was pretty damn cool. <laughs> <laughs> she had a red dress. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was like silky. Oof. In the fire service. 
God, there's so many of them. Uh, they all deal with two crews. I call them the ski crew. It was the Brian Onkist, Rob Moore, you know, back when Rob didn't hate me. It was uh, Rob Moore, Ski, Brian Onkist. Oh, God, Sherry Rife was on that crew. Who else? Those, those two feet. Oh, Lisa, Lisa was on the crew. Those were some good times. Wayne and Reddick. I, he what's that? There. Wayne Reddick was there too, right? Yeah, but uh, for some of that, uh, so he went to A shift. So it's like, uh, he's also in my, cause it's like lots of times, even when he went to A shift, he was working with us again. So wait, yeah, wait, Randy Reddick was there too. I, yes, he was Brian drum and, um, Brian drum was a great new guy. He left to become a bartender in New York city. And I never liked that Brian drum and Brian Uncas didn't get along well because they were both cool people, but for some reason they didn't like each other. I was always striving to make that relationship work, but that was always my, up until 72, that was my fucking go-to shift. If someone said, what was the all, the best crew ever? I would said that. And I, I don't want to take away from that ski and, and Brian, but fucking a man, Jen Taylor and fucking, and Tommy and Nito and Alex. Man, that was man. the best crew. That was the best crew. And then you had that, you know, oh, and also like Jesus Christ, because Jojo was the chief, right? And I got hired with Jojo and he was also a union rep. So it's like, it was a battalion chief instead of like, Hurran, get your ass in here kind of a thing. You know, it's like, oh Christ, I'm in trouble with the fire chief. It'd be like, hey man, come on in here and drink coffee with me. You got to hear this bullshit. You know what I mean? And he would just talk to me like a union member. And it was like, so he was, he's my favorite battalion chief. He's Jojo. So yeah, so like that was just a good time for me, you know. It was a busy station. Occasionally, occasionally we would sleep all night, but you know we got the call at ten, we got the call at one, and we got the call at four. That was the that was the normal. Then we also got nights where it's like we got the call every hour on the hour, but like the majority of time is you got up two times after midnight and once before. So it wasn't a wasn't a terrible station. It definitely kept you out of tones. And it was also the beginning of the heroin thing. I remember that's like, holy shit. Like I ran before 72, I ran maybe 20 heroin calls. Now I ran a shitload. I couldn't count the cocaine uh, crack calls I ran, but my whole career before, you know, 2010 or 12 or something around there, I ran maybe, maybe 10 heroin calls. And then I ran 10 heroin calls in two months. And I was there, what, a year and a half, two years. And it's like, I, 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 it was, I lost count of how many heroin overdoses I ran on. They were constant. It was like every shift, every other shift would be a heroin overdose. You know, I got hired in 99 and from like 99 to even like the early 2000s down there, South OBT, South Orange Avenue from Taft up to Pinecastle area, yeah. that, that was there was a lot of heroin. You know, you'd go yep. to the bathroom at the 7-Eleven because yep. somebody had a needle in their arm and they were unresponsive. We had that lieutenant, that big heavy set lieutenant. I'm not going to say his name because, you know, it wouldn't be right. Hopefully he got his shit together. And he had a problem with crack. He came to the station. This is what he said. It's like, this is what he said. He came to the station the shift before he was supposed to report there. And he's like, you guys may have heard rumors. So that's why I'm not talking shit because this is what he told us. He said, you guys may have heard rumors that, you know, I was a crack addict. And it's like, well, it's true. <laughs> and then he would go on to say that I bipolar and I self-medicated with crack cocaine. So they moved me out of fire loss and decided that I should be on an engine with you, Terry and Sam. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so we ran him off eventually because he was an incompetent boob also. He was smart, but you know, the bipolar shit and the uh, 
whatever meds he was taking. I played him in chess. He said, I heard you were smart. Like that's what people used to come to me. Like I heard you were a troublemaker, but I heard you were smart. And right. And like, they would like, I'll take them down. And like, I'd put, put another notch on my belt, fucking carve another bugle up on the fucking uh, dry erase board. You know, another, <laughs> they would come and they would like, I'll get it. You watch it. I'll get this guy gone. And they would come fucking gunning for me. And anyway, so he wanted to play me chess. It's like, first he was going to try to dominate me in chess. So we played in chess and we got, we played for about an hour. Right. And like during lunch and, uh, halfway through he took the game and he just he just smashed the game across the you know the pieces went flying everywhere this is fucked up i can't concentrate it's like well i'm concentrating you know it's like the goddamn radio it's like you know that's what i meant by the bipolar thing but it's like i go so you're conceding the game to me or do we have to set it up again is there anything of value that we haven't touched on that you'd like to leave the audience with Do the right thing, man. Only evil can only be done when good men do nothing. That's one of my favorite quotes. And uh, any life, uh, unexamined life isn't worth living. You got to constantly, every night when you go to bed and you're staring up at the ceiling, you have to ask, did I behave honorably today? Did I do the right shit today? Even if you did nothing, if you just cut the fucking grass, did you cut the grass with honor? That's it for me. That's all I got. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for for coming on and uh, this was a really fun conversation. I think there's enough content in, in this conversation that one, people will have fun with it, enjoy listening, and they'll walk away with something to think about, about how to be a better person, I think. I hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hallenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.